Blog Talk Radio. This is BC Radio Live with Philip and Eric. Live online at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio. Aloha. This is February 13th, 2008, and this is BC Radio Live. Tonight on the show, Paul Reznikov from Digital Music News will join us to talk about music on the Internet. Also, the television writer's strike is over, and DC Magazine's own Josh Lasser co-hosted the will fill us in on all the details. But first, Blog Critics Magazine Band of the Week, LA Band's Second Day Crush, will be on the show to talk about their new album, From the Night You Lost Your Voice. The chat room is now open at blogtalkradio.com slash radio, and the live video is now running. I am Philip Wynn, Chief Geek at BC Magazine, and I am joined tonight by Eric Olson, founder and publisher of BC Magazine. Hi, Eric. Hi, Philip. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, we're also joined tonight by Lisa McKay, executive producer of BC Magazine. Welcome, Lisa. Hey, Philip. How are you tonight? Still great. <laughs> so you, your, your condition did not deteriorate in that 30-second period? Not not in the last four seconds. No, no. Excellent. I think I'm doing still pretty much the same. <laughs> it's good to hear from you guys again. Hi, Lisa. Hey, Eric. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Excellent. Well, let's. Uh, we we do have a little bit of a busy show tonight. I know we have a second day crush waiting on the line. We've got uh, Rami uh, and uh, probably at this point Chris as well. So let's uh, let's get right to it. Here's a little sample from uh, their new album. This is uh, Put Down Your Guns. Second Day Crush is BC Magazine's Band of the Week this week, and A.L. Harper's interview with the band is at blogcritics.org. We're also delighted to welcome them to the show tonight. Welcome to BC Radio Live, guys. Hey, how's hey. it going, guys? <laughs> We're doing great. Now, we have, uh, is this Rami and Chris on the line? Yeah, yeah. we also got Jeremy. He just showed up, our other guitar player. Excellent. Great. It's a guitar hey, army. Yeah, right. Exactly. You, you have you have everybody who's up front. You know, the rhythm section is missing, but isn't that usually the case? It sure is. Oh. Those poor guys, you know. Yeah, I know. Seriously, they're just you know, they're in the back and in the back all the time. Exactly. All, all they do is is provide the underpinnings and make the rest of it possible, but they're kicked to the curb repeatedly. Exactly. But we all know without a good rhythm section, you just you don't amount of, amount to much. So. Well, imagine the Who, for example. Uh, with, without that rhythm section. And yeah, or, or Led Zeppelin, or ACDC. You or, know. Or, or probably anyone else, for that yeah, matter. Exactly. Very the true. Beatles, for that matter, you know. Yes, very true. Well, actually, I could imagine the Beatles without the rhythm. No, I'm just kidding. Somewhat. They're, they're, you're right. They're a little less. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, I don't, I don't think Ringo gets his due, you know? I no, still. he never does. I completely, completely agree. I mean, Even to this day. Even right. to this day, he does not. Dude, you'll see, Ringo will be the last one standing, man. He's too dumb to die. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> he was just, uh, what, what, where was he at, the Grammys? Is that where he, right. I just saw yeah. him, you know. Yeah, presented an award to Vince Gill. He looked like he hadn't, he looked like he hadn't aged in about 20 years. He's looked the same since about 1985. It's amazing. Uh, yeah. So, guys, we're really happy to have you on, and uh, I, I hadn't even realized till till today that, that you were the band of the week, so that's. Quite a coincidence. So you talked to our our fair Andrea Harper, and uh, yeah. that looks great. So we want to make sure people go check that out. Rather than give the big long URL, all you have to do is go to blogcritics.org/music, and there's a link to the interview uh, off of that page. And we encourage everyone to check that out. Uh, why don't you guys just kind of give us the background? How you came together? Uh, how long have you been a band now? Well, in, it's, it's actually that's an interesting question because there's 
there's been certain incarnations of the band. Um, Rick and I have been in, working together, who's the bass player who's missing, for about two years. And then Randy came in about a year ago, and then Jeremy, Jeremy our guitar player, is also on the line, has been in the band for about six months now. Um, so that's kind of how, it, how it's gone about. Yeah, I kind of joined up right before we recorded the album, so it was kind of perfect timing. Yeah. yeah, I guess uh, in reading the bio, uh, you were in a band that had just broken up, isn't that right? Yeah, yeah, I was in a band, and we, you know, were doing our thing, and, you know, people go different ways, somebody got married and all that stuff, and, uh, you know, I've known Second Day Crush the whole time. Uh, my drummer in the last band was his best friend with Chris, so, you know, I'd always known Chris and always liked what he was doing, what, what was doing my own thing, and then, um, you know, my thing fell apart, and I, you know, texted Chris, like, hey, man, you need a guitar player, and he was like, Texted me like, are you kidding? Please, that would be great. So we got together, and uh, me, him, and Rick, and uh, they kind of talked to me about what they were thinking my role in the in the band would be, and I was like, yeah, that that feels right. I could do that. That feels comfortable. And uh, listening to the songs, and I was like, yeah, I've got ideas. It's great. And they're like, cool. We want your ideas. Like, we want you to bring your sauce, as they said. So uh, so um, it was just perfect timing. They just started kind of like doing the pre-production for the album, and. Uh, just I kind of stepped right in stride. We never missed the beat, and it just kept going. So things have been moving since. It feels really good. And the uh, beat goes on. And the beat. And it, it's self-produced, right? The album. Absolutely. Rick actually, Rick actually uh, had the the reins on that for the most part. Um, out of curiosity, where did you get that clip of "Put Down Your Guns"? <laughs> uh, you know, I don't actually know. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, actually, the old one that didn't, uh, with the old chorus that didn't make the record, and we changed it. That's why we were all laughing when I was hearing it. I was like, "Man, How bizarre!" Oh. Well, yeah, was it no, from the MySpace? New was one. It? Yeah, the, uh, the new one is on MySpace. Oh yeah, I may, may have grabbed the wrong one somewhere. I'm not. I'm not actually sure. Sorry about yeah, that. Yeah, I think, I think Mona I, must no, have no. sent us. Uh, Mona sent us some MP3s, I believe. Right, right, right. Uh, oddly enough, that version, a lot of people love it. And I, I was checking. I was on LimeWire the other day, and I was like, I'm curious. And that one actually is one of the most downloaded songs on LimeWire by us. So, thought that was really interesting. Uh-huh. Well, the the yeah. the your. Your decision on that is apparently being vetoed by the masses. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and inadvertently by Philip. <laughs> uh, well, how interesting. Well, now, are, have you guys we been... also have clips from uh, Watch the World and Bring You Home, so hopefully we've got uh, better versions of those. <laughs> well, I hope they're the right ones. <laughs> <laughs> he, Philip was actually he was hiding behind a trash can at, at the recording studio with you guys. <laughs> and and he he pulled out all your rejected versions. That's right, what it right. was because he's trying to subvert your career. Those are the actually Sarah McLaughlin remixes. So uh. yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, so have you guys been uh, a, a, a live band? Have you been playing around town a lot? Have you been on tour yet? Absolutely, and we leave for tour again on uh, Feb- February 29th for yeah. about three weeks. Vegas, baby! We're starting in Vegas. Everybody, come on out. We got a whole weekend stint. First weekend is March. 29, first and second in Vegas. Check out MySpace page for the dates. Right, Vegas, Albuquerque, Denver, uh, a couple other places in uh, Colorado, St. George, Utah, Arizona, Hollywood, Fullerton. Yeah, yep. you're going to spend a few weeks on the road. Yeah, absolutely. Where do you live? We're going to be rearing. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry too. We we got a lot of people involved here. That makes we do. It, we do. It makes it fun and exciting, but everyone's stomping on top of each other. Man, and I am notorious for interrupting people, so I apologize for that. Probably before we do anything else, we, we always got to make sure people know what's going on. Since we're referring them to your to your MySpace page, let's make sure that they know what it is. It's www.myspace.com slash the number two and then N-D-D-A-Y-C-R-U-S-H. Where, I, what I was going to ask is where have you been playing around L.A.? Uh, we usually do like a hometown show at the Key Club. Like we used to do it probably once every two months, but uh, Key Club treats us great. Everyone's awesome there, and the sound's phenomenal. So usually Main Stage Knitting Factory or Key Club usually are our best bet. Where in L.A. are you actually based? Uh, Los Angeles for the most part. Oh. Kind of scattered, but... All, all around, huh? Absolutely. Uh, now, I know you're based there, of course, but uh, how many of you are actually from there, or how many are from <laughs> elsewhere? Is anyone really from L.A.? Is the question. I am. I was. Bo- I don't live there now, but I was born in the um, San Pedro Hospital, so I am really? actually from L.A. You're I the one, a- sir. I am that guy. Yeah, no one That's else has correct. ever 
from there. Actually, no, my parents are both from. They're not. My mother's from L.A. My dad's from San Francisco. So I'm actually second generation California, if you can believe that. Nice. Nice. But I live in Ohio. How crazy is that? That is crazy. What made you leave L.A.? Uh, first time around, uh, my dad uh, got promoted from uh, – he worked at TRW out there. You still see the building. I don't think it says TRW anymore, but Space Park right there off of the um, the 405 at, at the Redondo Curve there, that okay, big, no, tall exactly. building, you know, the 11-story one. And it used to be TRW. They were bought out by Northrop Grumman. Anyway, he got promoted back here, which used to be or was the uh, world headquarters. So one day he came home and said, we're moving to Cleveland. And we were all like, where? I mean, I barely heard of Cleveland at that point. So Part of rock and roll. Well, yeah, we got the rock hall here. There's lots of good things. Once I got here, I, I uh, responded real well to it. I, I came way back in the... 70s that's how old i am and uh you know the the radio was just really busting out there you guys may may have heard i don't know maybe you're too young i've heard of wmms it was kind of like the the fm station in the country it kept winning the rolling stone poll every year best radio station and they broke a lot of really great music in the 70s but you know that's a long time ago but yeah i mean since i've been here the the city has really revived and uh, they've rebuilt downtown and uh, rebuilt all the stadiums, and it's not a bad place. So, yeah, I went to high school and college here, then was back in L.A. for the 80s, and uh, I, I owned one of the big, uh, biggest DJ companies. So I was working with bands and out uh, DJing, like, in between sets and doing all that, and that was great, a lot of fun. And then I've been back here again for since the, the 90s. So that cool. is my uh, sad and desperate tale. <laughs> where, where are you guys all from? Uh, Jeremy's from Chicago, Chris is from Boston, Rick is from Tampa, and George and myself, long story short, are from Denver. What drew you all collectively and individually to L.A.? Uh, Chris, you want to start on that one? Yeah, sure. Um, actually, I was, uh, you know, being from Boston, I was a Boston University grad uh, recently, and I came actually out here to do, um, film. And but the weird thing was is every time I wrote a movie or directed, I was everything was being composed with the based around music. And then I was working in sound design and I was training my ear, and um, I was bringing in my own songs to sing. And um, the woman who I was taking vocal lessons from was like, "Are these are these your songs?" After about a few weeks, and I was like, "Yeah." She's like, "I think they're really great, and I would love to manage you." And since then, I really haven't looked back. And then. You know, I was doing the singer-songwriter thing, and um, I'd met Rick through a guy named Michael Raphael, who was in a band called Neve, and um, we were doing a showcase opening up for Neve. Um, they were on Columbia Records at the time, and um, Rick and I just hit it off. And then we were just, I was like, dude, I basically the next day, I was like, you know, I'll do whatever it takes. This was being a band together. And he was like, all right, cool. So then, you know, we started forming it. We needed a guitar player. We found Rami, and... Um, you know, we went through about 150 guitar players <laughs> trying to find the right one. And um, I was playing guitar at the time, too. And then I kind of wanted to just step out and be more of a frontman. The cool thing about Rami is he, his best friend, George, was the drummer. So he got in the band, and then we really needed we needed somebody who could shred. You know, and that was that's where Jeremy came in. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> Interesting. Wow. Yeah. Well, it really yeah. came together. So how old are you guys? What's the range? We go we go from 22 to 26. So you're young. You're young. Well, that's a great story about, you know, I mean, it, it really seems, it's not uncommon that it, it, it seems like that creative people, you know, kind of move fluidly between between the different media. That's But that's interesting that, that Chris started in film. Couldn't have been too long ago. That no, no, no. He graduated a few years ago, so... You know, but, like, the great thing about being in film and, and, and thinking of that, you know, way is, like, I don't know, I feel like all the songs tell a story, that you know, and and that was that's kind of, like, how I approach songwriting. Cinematically. Yeah, exactly. And and you have a, a screenwriting background, then. Yep, screenwriting background. Interesting, very interesting. What... Um, what are your influences? Who are some of your favorites? Who who you know in the past and then and then now? Who who do you guys liken yourself to or or just derive inspiration from? I mean, I think who we liken ourselves to is you know some sort of cross hybrid between you know like Maroon Five and the Killers and whatnot. But um, you know our influences draw 
from from so many different wells. You know, I know Chris is uh, you know really into Ryan Adams and Counting Crows and stuff, and for me, it's a lot of classic rock and uh, you know Hendrix and Zeppelin and stuff like that. And I know Rami listens to a lot of polka, so you know I know that we kind of all draw from different. I'm big. I'm big into pop country. I like Brad Paisley, Rascal Flatts, that kind of thing, and then Rune the and all that stuff. <laughs> we're kind of. I guess we're kind of like. Uh, someone said that we ripped off a drama rama song once, and I was like, what? Apparently, Anything Anything sounds like the song that we have called I Always. I don't really see it, but we're like, all right, cool, I guess. Sweet. Yeah, I don't think it's anything like drama rama but I mean, you know, it's, no. it's, it's interesting because we're five guys with five very different musical backgrounds and very different influences who all decided to join a band. You know, I was joking, like, we're five guys that can't agree on anything except to be in a band together, but... um. It, it, which is kind of true and kind of false, but you know, Rick has a Motown background, and you know, with all these different influences, we always think like if the five of us can agree on what we're about to play, we know it's got to be you know at least pretty good. Well, before we uh, turn to, to discuss the new album, let's uh, play another sample. This is uh, "Watch the World." Hopefully, the uh, the version from the album, "The Night You Lost." I got I got a feeling it's gonna be the old one, but anyway, go ahead. That is one <laughs> So yay or nay, was that the right one or not? That was the wrong one. <laughs> God, we're two for two. How is this happening? I know. I, I'm telling you, Bring You Home is another We, we basically re-recorded a lot of songs. We that, Those two versions that you did, one was recorded with Jim Wirt, and the other one was recorded with a guy named Phil Tarugi, um and Warren Hewitt. Warren um, did The Fray, and, and Jim had done, like, um, Incubus and stuff. But, you know, I don't, I don't know how you guys got those ones. They were, they were out on the Internet, and we allowed people to download them for quite some time, but I'm not sure how you guys got them. Uh, I can't answer that because it's not my fault. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> uh, well, moving on to the album, I, we apologize for playing the wrong bird, but people at least are hearing the song and they're hearing, yeah, no, totally. you know, I mean, they're hearing how how it comes together in the songwriting. But I must say, uh, I was actually I forgot to bring it. I'm back at the office now, but I was home earlier and I was I listened to uh, I think almost the whole the whole CD and it really holds together really well. It's eclectic. It is, it, you know, there's a lot of variety on it, so it's definitely don't uh, you don't get bored, and there's not a, a sameness to it. But it, it also all sounds like you guys, and, and I really enjoyed it. I mean, I, I had a good time. I was I was actually working in the basement, rearranging my speakers, which is what I do whenever I get frustrated. You know, I just go around and rearrange speakers because it makes me happy. And I was listening to the CD, and I I really enjoyed it quite a bit. So I wanted to be sure to say that, and uh, you know, recommend it to. To fans of uh, oh, okay, it's so hard to come up with a generic term, you know. I mean, it's clearly it's po- it's melodic, um, you know, uh, modern rock. How about that? Yeah, and you know, like, like we all, I think, get bored with music pretty quickly. So, especially collectively. So, I think it was kind of an intention, and at least like an underbelly of everything we were doing was to kind of keep the album fresh and to keep each song fresh and kind of make it you know, grow as the album got went on, so it wasn't just a one-and-done listen to, like, all right, I get it, it's something that you'd want to keep coming back to and ideally listen to over and over again. So, now, you put it out on your own completely, right? Absolutely. Yeah, we did. So, how's it doing? So Great. far, so good, you know, so far, so good. We're starting to get attention from a lot of different um, people. The, the thing is, we had worked with a label before this. Um, we had worked with a label called Fuzz, and um, there were, you know, a bunch of great guys up north in, in San Francisco, and we just decided that, you know, there's so many different ideas and directions that they wanted to push us into and that they weren't sure of. And we're like, man, we just want to be ourselves. And we thought the best opportunity to do that was to really record this record on our own. You know, they had us go work with Jeff Saltzman, who did The Killers' first record, and we were so excited by that. But um, I just don't think they gave us enough time to actually really try to do a whole record. And we so we just said, you know what, screw it. We know what we want to do, and we've worked with enough people who have taught us like all the tricks that we think we need into making a great record. And we know that we can put these songs together and have it 
have it really come home. So that's what we decided to do, you know. And I think the fans have really reacted. It, it's been, you know, people have been really, really reacting to it, telling how much they love it, and we're just excited to get it out there to more people. Well, it's very well recorded. And the arrangements are good, and and the sound is is really sharp. Um, and and I think it's funny. That's pretty good, though. <laughs> you know, it sounds. It doesn't. It's not thin. You know, a lot of a lot of self recorded stuff. I mean. You, you, you can hear, you know, hey, the songs are good, the performances are good, and all that, but but there's often something a little bit missing. But this this sounds really polished and and very well done. I I, I think you guys did a really well, Rick great is definitely job. professional. That's why he can't actually be here right now. He's recording a hip hop band called the they're called the Villains. They're based out of Tampa, and you know, a guy named Mike Cresswell who's worked with Black Alicious and Third Eye Blind and Honeycut. And um, a bunch of different others. He's the guy who mixed our record, and, and he's he's not too shabby, if you know what I mean. Well, sure. The mixing that's that's the where, where yeah. the rubber meets the road. So that's a key exactly. key part to it. D- does yeah. does Rick have recording equipment? I mean, were you in a studio? Or you have your own stuff? How did all that come together? Rick has a whole studio at his house, like ISA booth, everything. But also, we kind of played it off, and we did the drums at 4th Street Studios, where Jim Wirt usually is based out of, in Santa Monica, and then we did most of the guitar work, actually, at our walkout, and uh, just rigged everything up and brought all the equipment down there, like recording equipment, and it actually turned out pretty great. Interesting. Yeah. Well, um, I that's, really want to commend you guys. It's, you know, I mean, it's, it's better these days, because you have the tools, you got the internet, you got the MySpace page. And, and I think that's it's a it's an exciting time to be a band that that has that's that's self directed and you guys obviously know what you're doing know what you want to achieve have some experience behind you and uh, but still you know it takes it takes a lot to kind of throw caution to the wind and and do everything yourself so I really admire you guys and and uh, wish you the best of luck it's really great do you have any, do you have favorites do you have favorite songs on the album. Uh, yeah, personally, personally, I think put, uh, "Put Down Your Guns" is my favorite. But of course, we heard the wrong version of it. <laughs> yeah, the new version is my favorite. <laughs> okay. Well, but you album. can hear the new version on our MySpace, you know, MySpace.com/slash/SecondDayCrush2NDDAYCRUSH if they want to hear it. And um, they can also, that's how they can go to the record and buy the record. They can go to iTunes if they like it, or they can click on to buy the record here on our MySpace, and they'll take us take you to their to our store. So that's a good way of checking it out. Excellent. Also, we, yeah. just, we just released a video for the victim that we shot in December, and it's uh, up on our MySpace page and running. It just came out about a week ago, and uh, we're all pretty excited about it. And the tour dates are listed there. And of course, everything he, is on there. And it looks like he got a lot of hot women who are your friends. Uh, <laughs> checking out the the comments, you know, going down there. The most the most recent fifty. It's primarily women. Always a good sign. Always a good sign. <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't like that before I joined the band. It really just as soon as I joined, <laughs> it used to be all dudes. It's all dudes. All like <laughs> all southern gay men actually, which is nothing wrong with it. No, it's just not. all. And and they all live in alleys. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's weird lots of leather. leather. Lots of leather in our in our dumpster show. diving. Leather guys. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure we get the right audio for Bring You Home. I'm actually gonna see if I can pull some technical wizardry here and and play it right off of your MySpace page. So. Good God. Bring oh, on there, but if you want to play, uh, uh, I think put down your ca- or no cameras would actually be a good one. No cameras. Okay, we will we will yeah, get a, a, whatever sample of no cameras is right there on your uh, your page. Yep. I do want to remind everybody to check out BC Magazine's Band of the Week, Second Day Crush, uh, at myspace.com slash 2ndaycrush, and uh, check out their debut album, From the Nights You Lost Your Voice. And here, hopefully, is no cameras. Yeah. That's the AM radio version. <laughs> That's how yeah. they used to test them, you know. They, they, uh, what's it going to sound like on an AM radio? Of course, people don't listen to re- music on AM radio anymore. Yeah. 
Well, the audio fidelity is a little bit lacking, but uh, but at least that is the version you'll find on the album. And I do hope that everybody checked it out. Thanks very much for joining us tonight. Uh, Thank you guys so much for having us. And, and tell Andrea that we love her. And the uh, the interview that she wrote was amazing, and, and it was just it's amazing talking to her. I've never ever we we do a lot of these little interviews, and I've never had anybody so spectacular and give so much detail and just could, a great conversation really with her. So yeah. excellent, she, she, really she, glad to hear that. She, that's her favorite. Amazing. Her favorite task with us is doing the, the uh, the indie band interviews, which you know go into the band of the week. That is her favorite thing, and it really it really shows because she does, like you say, she really gives it her all and she takes it seriously. And and I'm, but that's really great to hear that. So thanks very much. And let's remind everyone one more time that that interview, the written interview, is available on Blog Critics, and all you have to do is go to blogcritics.org/music. And you'll see a link to the actual interview right there from the front page of the music section. Hey, we're really happy to have Second Day Crush. Um, do they need to go? Do we have Josh waiting yet, Philip? Uh, yep. Actually, I was just gonna segue. I, we've already switched uh, some phone lines around, and uh, at long last, the television writer strike is finally over. The WGA will be getting back to work, and here to tell us all about it is Josh Lasser, BC Magazine's television editor and co-host of Screen Time. Welcome to back to BC Radio Live, Josh. Ah, it's wonderful to be here, and thank goodness this strike is over. Yeah, I could tell you guys were kind of kind of foundering there, you know, coming up with something, and poor Josh is stuck doing American Gladiator, and uh, what else have you been reviewing the last few weeks? I, I remember that one. Oh, American Gladiators and Celebrity Apprentice, I mean, that would have been around, you know, whether or not the strike occurred, but, uh, uh, I mean, you know, the big thing is that nobody's quite sure still when new shows are going to be coming back on the air. So, I mean, this could still continue for a while. Did you see that release that came in from NBC today? I did, yeah. NBC's announced, you know, that a bunch of new shows are coming back, or a bunch of old shows are coming back. My name is Earl and The Office and everything. And they've given tentative dates for when these shows are coming back. And some networks like CBS have given tentative dates for when things will be back and a tentative number of expected episodes. And ABC's done the same thing. But it's still a little all up in the air. Nobody's quite sure at this point, you know, when things will truly be ready and be delivered. Because NBC can say all that it wants. That, you know, my name is Earl. is going to come back April 10th. And the writers for Earl probably showed up for work today for the first time in three months. But, you know, what was in the pipeline, what wasn't in the pipeline, are there going to be production delays for whatever reason? Restaffing, you got to remember... All the non-union guys, or the vast majority of the non-union guys, lost their jobs. So uh, they've all been rehired, or most of them hopefully will be rehired. But you know, you're, you're we'll, talking there about you're talking there about cameras, lighting, all those guys. All right? those guys, all those guys, the lowly production assistants. You know, the sort of the backbone of the show, the people that don't get any of the respect and don't get any of the money, but are still crucial to the process, have to get rehired. And I'm sure that they will be rehired. But uh, maybe it'll take longer than everybody thinks and everybody hopes. Interesting perspective. What do you think of the the uh, agreement itself? I, you know, I, I've been unable to sort of piece it together because I've been reading a lot about it and reading some of it myself. You've got to be a lawyer to understand exactly what they're saying. And some people say that it's a good deal for the writers. Others say that uh, they didn't quite get everything that they wanted. In the end, the writers did get an amount of money based upon, you know, web downloads. But I think it only kicks in. They're getting money in the third year of the three-year contract. And it might only be, I think it's only a flat rate, not a percentage, which is what they'd originally hoped. And it's not immediately that for shows that instantly go up online, it's for shows that have been online for a certain amount of time, or older shows that are now being put online. It, the yeah, there's, show, there's it, something it, called the promo period, apparently. Yes, yes. There's the free period, you know, in order to promote people going to, going and watching the show on TV or on going to the website to get additional information. So the writers say it was a good deal for them. The networks say it was a good deal for them. So whether that's bluster or whether that's truth, I couldn't say. So do you so think it's worth it? I'm sorry. Go ahead, Philip. 
Well, I was used to say in the end, the, the only people for whom it wasn't a good deal is all of us poor television viewers who've had to suffer through repeats and missing episodes. Repeats and missing episodes. And the thing is, nobody's still quite sure what's going to happen in the fall because the traditional pilot period, the traditional time when networks buy scripts, which now haven't been written, is now. The networks are supposed to be or have finished already buying their scripts and starting to order pilots which is what they base their series orders for the fall on. And it just hasn't happened because nobody's been writing anything. So the fall could be completely different again. And in June, the SAG agreement, the Screen Actors Guild television agreement expires. So oh they've announced, they've stated that they're not quite sure that, you know, that the DGA, the Directors Guild, who signed an agreement, and that uh, the WGA agreements are quite what they're after. They're not, SAG isn't sure that the directors and writers got exactly what SAG is going to want. So they're starting to talk like they might go out, too. Oh, my. Well, I, as, as I understand it, with the final kind of impetus that, that kicked this through, uh, you know, after this three months was, was how really bleak the Golden Globes were, you know, and, and there was, everyone had this vision of how the Grammys and then especially how the Oscars could be mm-hmm. if the strike was still going on. Uh, do, don't you, are you saying you're, you're not sure that, that, that everyone in the business is, is, isn't sick enough uh, <laughs> of it well, yet, that they may be willing sure to go through not, it again? If you look at the, the writers voted last night to not uh, not to approve the contract but to end the work stoppage and even that wasn't an, a 100% vote it was it was the vast majority of it i think it was 92 and a half percent of the writers voted to end the work stoppage but so there's 7 and a half percent that clearly are still unhappy and i would imagine that those 7 and a half percent will vote against the contract cuz they're quite sure I, I believe that you know they didn't get what they want and uh, I would imagine that a few other people have decided that, you know, yes, we want to go back to work, but no, we're not happy with the contract. So and things are certainly not uniform. So, And how can the WGA now say to SAG, you know, we don't think you should strike? The WGA is going to have to support SAG in their strike. Wow. That's, if that's if messy. SAG chooses to do it. What uh, One of the things I've been picking up, um, and, and again, it's it's, I don't really comprehend the details, and it, it really is pretty complicated when you get into, you know, who wants what and how it all works. I'm, I'm gradually forming a very broad outline of how it works. But one of the things that's, that's supposedly, um, you know, really important uh, potential anyway, ramification of this whole thing, is that the, the very structure, you know, of the business could change really quite quickly. Um, I guess the upfronts uh, have are potentially even going away could you explain how all that works and how how that could be changed with with the with the what what the business learned uh, over the last 3 months well traditionally the upfront is when the the big networks go out and they show the advertisers and they show the affiliates and they show the world you know this is what we're going to have on in the fall it they take place at the end of May middle to end of May you know, right as the television season is ending, and there's this whole big song and dance, and they fly in stars, and they put people up at hotels, and there are huge parties related to it, and it's like a, a huge week-long event. Every network gets a day. Some of the small networks, they take like a half a day, but it's this huge, huge thing, and, uh, well, nobody's quite sure that, you know, the shows, of course, for the fall will be ready at that point to show even the pilot, and and beyond that, I think that a bunch of networks, and NBC, I think, sort of is leading the pack with this, have decided that, you know, because of the writer's strike, they're going to use that as the opportunity to change the model. Whether or not they wanted to change the model before, or, uh, and, you know, just decided that, well, you know, because of the writer's strike, we now have an excuse to do it, or, or whether they decided due to the strike, you know, whether that was the moment where they took a look at what they what was going on and decided to change things, I'm not sure. So what potentially would, how would the model change? Well, rather than doing a big song and dance, what they would do is they'd go just to the advertisers and say, you know, 
these are the shows we have for the fall, it wouldn't be a whole big production number. It would just be, you know, here are the episodes and here's why we think it's going to do well, and that would be it. And here, here are the rates we're going to charge. Do you think they're going to keep moving more toward the year-round schedule? I mean, we've seen that, you know, in, in, in pieces, and I think Fox has done more with that maybe than anyone. Uh, but do you think we're going to see more and more of the, of the year-round? Well, I think that the, the concern – well, there are two concerns. On the pro side, uh, the reason to do the year-round schedule is that the, every year in September – the networks have seen a drop-off in viewership, 5%. Some people say some people say more, some people say less. But about 5%, assume, in viewership drop-off every September, one September to the next. Huh. So by doing a, a year-round schedule, you know, the networks would be assuming that you know, people forget about television in June, July, and August. And so what we're going to do is we're going to keep pumping out new things so people don't forget about us. On the other side... One of the reasons that the schedule is the way it is is that television viewership levels generally decline over the summer. Whether it's new programming or old programming, it's just been seen that they go down. So it might be just sort of throwing good money after bad to spend millions and millions of dollars on a series that might be great, but nobody's going to watch because they're all out at the pool. And so now are, the, are the studios primarily blaming, um, you know, cable? Are they blaming the Internet? What, what are they saying explains the, the year-to-year drop in viewership? It's cable, it's the Internet, it's DVDs, it's a little bit of everything. I don't think that they've been able to sort of pinpoint one thing. Uh, you know, TV, anti-TV people would say it's a result of the decline in quality programming, but... Who knows? Uh, yeah, I don't buy that. I think I, I don't either. Just because I think some of the best television ever written is is on the air today. Well, you, there's so so much volume. That's what it is. You know, there's there's so many more outlets now. So, you know, sure, it's not all going to be great. But I think if you pick the best, and and that's really all you can do when you compare eras, you pick okay, what's the best? Right. And I think the best now, you know, more or less holds up with any other time. I'm going to attribute the quote to Carl Reiner, and I think that that's right. I think it was Carl Reiner that said it, that somebody asked me on TV back in the day and TV today, and he said it's the same. He said that it's the top, the 1%, there's 1% of it that's good, and there's 1% back in the 1950s and 1% in the 60s and 1% today. So that was his number, and like I said, I'm attributing it to Carl Reiner, but I could be totally off base. And it's just the farther in time, the farther away you get, the easier it is to forget all the crap. That's well, that's that's exactly right. I mean, if you go back to the 50s, everybody can point at six or seven or eight fantastic comedies that were on back in the 1950s, but the vast majority of the schedule people have forgotten about. Yeah, because it was just crap like you know what do you expect exactly like anything else like like tv should be different from movies or books or mm-hmm. you know just on and on and on and on most of everything is is mediocre crap right. or, or as, as uh, science fiction writer theodore sturgeon once put it 90 percent of everything is crap <laughs> well there's that way yes exactly i mean and, and what do you expect i mean that's just the way it is when you when you're in a democracy which you know more or less we are People are allowed to, uh, you know, to do what they want and allowed to be creative as they see fit. And as long as there's a, a method for getting it out there, you're going to get a lot of stuff that's that's uh, mediocre, shall we say? As, I, as, I agree. I agree completely. If you, I mean, there are people point to a lot of web series, webisodes, whatever you want to call them, that, that are being done by people in their basements or their backyards, or wherever it is that they do them, and say, like, look, this is fantastic, this is the cutting edge, this is where the future is. But the vast majority of the stuff is horrible. Of course. Well, you know, the analogy is is certainly holds for the music business. You know, what, what the major labels have done, and of course their model is falling apart more quickly, they're preceding the, the film and TV business in, in entering this new internet-based, uh, you know, and digital world, uh, but, you know, because their model's been falling apart for 10 years now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, what they've been able to do, the positive thing, I think, that the, that the major labels have done for the last, you know, 50, 60 years, is they've been a filter, you know, and, and that's why, in the broadest sense, the very broadest sense, the material, you know, on average, from the major labels, is a lot better than 
the material on average from the indies over the last 50 years. Now, does that mean there's not all kinds of just great stuff uh, that's, that's come out on, on indie labels for the last 50 years or, or 100 years for that matter? No, of course not. There's all kinds of great stuff. But it's a much lower percentage because what, what that entire structure of the major labels, record labels, have been set up for is to act as a filter and to make it difficult. It's all there to make it difficult to uh, you know, get your material out. It's hard to get signed by them. It's hard to, you know, they got all these people uh, pushing and prodding and, and telling you to do it this way, do it that way, your A&R guy and, you know, the marketing people at the end there and on and on and on. And, you know, the net result is, sure, a lot of stuff gets homogenized, but, you know, on average, the material that's come out, you know, I, I, I would certainly say, you know, the average material from Columbia over the last 50 years is better than, you know, the average from, you know, pick some con- a combination of indie labels. There aren't a whole lot of indie labels that have been around that long. Although I think Delmark has a jazz label out of, first it was St. Louis and then Chicago. You know, there's a few. But uh, anyway, that's, you know, same with same with TV and same with film. What, why are they there? They're, they're, they're filters, you know. In theory, they're finding the very best material and then making it using high production values and and doing you know finding the best people to do all those different things and we're seeing that fall apart and and it's to a certain extent anyway and it's very liberating i think that all these people out there all of a sudden millions of people literally can can make their own if it isn't TV and if it isn't a movie it's at least video right mm-hmm. and 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 so there sure there's going to be lots of interesting and inspired and and uh, you know, eccentric and and personal and and things that are are of value and, and that have an appeal. But it's mostly crap, man. It's just the way it is. I I, I agree that you know I think part of it for TV and film is that people have come to expect a, a certain a certain polish to what they see, a, a certain sheen to everything that appears that exists that appears on TV and that appears in film. And you realize that to make things look polished takes a lot of time and a lot of energy. And money. And a lot of money. And so that's why a lot of what you see on the Internet, it doesn't have that polished look and people write it off. And a lot of it's just not as interesting because it's so hard to focus on what's being done because you spend so much time looking at it and saying, wait a minute, some guy just did this in his basement, you know? Hey, I remember when Star Trek The Next Generation announced that they had a budget of a million dollars per episode, and, and it, was, it was big news because, I mean, a million dollars per episode of television? Who, who could think of spending that much money? And nowadays, I mean, I don't know no. what percentage, no, no, I don't know what percentage of shows on the air are more than a million an episode, but it's got to be pretty high. I would think the vast majority of television dramas are more than a million an episode. And right, that's why... That's why you see all these game shows that, you know, sure, we're going to give away a million dollars, deal or no deal, who wants to be a millionaire? All these game shows where the top prize is a million dollars because the game shows are inexpensive to make. You're never really going to give away the million dollars or very rarely are you going to do it. And you're just paying a host, mostly. Yeah, it's brilliant. I so mean, from their brilliant. standpoint, they love, right. you know, the, the, the networks, they love all this reality crap and the game shows because it's cheap as hell. Right, and it sounds good to the average person. I could win a million dollars. Sure, but it would like the cast of Friends. They each made, each of them made more than a million dollars an episode for a half hour of TV. So you're going to give one guy the chance at a million dollars over the course of an hour of Deal or No Deal? That's nothing. Right, because like you say, they're not really going to give that away very often anyway. Right. And you're getting all the drama and all the nonsense, uh, you know, in, in between uh, having to give anything away. So, exactly. yeah, I mean, sure, it may, I understand the, the network's perspective on wa- on the rise of reality TV and the return, really, of, of you know, game shows to, to prime time because it's cheap. And exactly. it's, it's a lot easier to deal with. You're not having to deal with unions. And, you know, you have an unlimited, literally unlimited supply of, of participants. I mean, you know, it's endless. When they have these auditions for the most obscure shows, all kinds of people show up. It's amazing. No matter how degrading it is, no matter how small the reward seems to be, you know, they get people showing up. Yeah, sure, I'll do that. Yes, absolutely. I will take a dump 
in a urinal on camera. Yes, I will. Right now, you got to offer me is $25. $0.25, cents, man, and I'm happy to do it. So do we have Paul on? He may have some thoughts on, on, on all of this. Is he is Paul on we the line? We don't, actually. We don't, actually, no. I, I was just sitting here looking at a list of the shows that I, I tend to keep track of, um, and, I, and I try to catch every week you know, when they're on, uh, House MD, Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles. Um, of course, uh, right now they're on play. Yeah, it's an expensive show. That is a very expensive show. That's got to be about a million dollars every five minutes uh, for for good chunks of that show. Well, you you notice that some of the episodes are like graphic heavy and, and yeah. CGI heavy, and then other ones there's none to be found. They sit around talking at the table for an hour or so. Uh, I did think about uh, one of the Terminator movies. You had the the uh, was it Jason Patrick character running around as Robert as, Patrick? Yeah, Robert Patrick. Too. Sorry, yeah, totally different guy. Uh, you know, running around as a totally silver man for a good percentage of the movie, mm-hmm. and in the show, when the guy gets reduced to metal, he uh, he manages to scrounge on some clothes and put on a mask, and lo and behold, uh, the only actual thing that separates him from a human wearing a costume are glowing red eyes. Well, that's, exactly. that's nice and cheap. <laughs> exactly right. Rather than having the metal endoskeleton be shown, no, no, no. He just he threw on a sweater. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Heroes is another one I, I watch when it's not on break, and that, that's a pretty expensive one. That is, and that, the Heroes is one of the shows that you won't be seeing again until the fall. Yeah, that's... NBC yeah. announced that yeah. uh, it will definitely be back in the fall, but not until then. And then uh, Lost is another one that uh, it seems to veer back and forth between some very, very expensive episodes and some episodes where it's a bunch of guys standing in the middle of the, the woods in, in Hawaii, and they're probably some pretty highly paid actors, but as far as actual budget other than, than talent, there doesn't seem to be much. Well, because what happens is, you know, while the actors and the crew, they're paid per episode, what the, stu- what the network does when they order a show is they say something like, and this is just an example, okay, we want five episodes, and for five episodes, we're going to give you $20 million. Right. And so, so they then they, they go out and they make the show, and they, the studio pays the actors. And however the studio wants to divide the $20 million over the course of the five episodes, that's how it gets done. If it's $18 million in one episode because it's special effects heavy, that's what's going to happen. And then How I Met Your Mother is another show I spend a lot of time with. It's nice to have at least one really, you know, I guess relatively speaking, low-budget show in there to help balance out how much I, I place a heavy demand on the networks. <laughs> I don't know that that's uh, that low-budget anymore, but uh, happily How I Met Your Mother allegedly, allegedly is coming back in April with a couple new episodes. Oh, that would be delightful. I guess they've got uh, Allison Hannigan, they've got Neil Patrick Harris. They've got a little bit of talent to finance. And, uh, they they do, and if you look at when it's on, it's on Monday nights at 8 o'clock. That's the show that starts off the week on CBS. So, you know, they at least believe in it, and I'm sure that they're shelling out dough somewhere for it. i got a question, Josh. Um, how do they decide, you know, what format they're going to shoot a show in? In other words, uh, are they going to do it with a live audience, or are they going to do it on video versus film? How do they make all those decisions? Because ultimately, even though you know, probably your average viewer doesn't pay that much attention to it. Uh, you know, it it all it goes to form, you know, the ambience the of, of the show. Well, I, I imagine it's much like uh, the music business would be when an, an artist gets signed, right? When a producer gets signed to make a show, they go back and forth with the uh, studio and, and the network. You know, okay, we, we want to do... You know, an, an hour-long straight drama. No, 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 it's got to be funnier. You know, you, I, we don't want drama. We want it to be a dramedy. Well, okay, we'll, we'll do your dramedy, but we want to shoot it on 35 millimeter. You're crazy. You're not going to shoot it on 35 millimeters. It's too expensive. You, we, so it's a lot of back-and-forth talk on what the producer's creative vision is, what the budget's going to allow for, what the network wants delivered. Do they now, typically, who, do they want to do it in front of an audience or 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 because that would involve your your you're on a set right as opposed to being out on location? Well, I would imagine it would d- depend greatly on the show itself whether they want to do it in front of an audience. Something like Terminator: The Sarah Connor Chronicles would look terrible in front of it. <laughs> it would be silly, wouldn't it? It would not be a very good show in front of a live studio audience. And then you have something like The Office, which is is a sitcom. 
but it doesn't do the laugh track. So you don't want an audience there to be laughing at the show. And they even, I think that they actually filmed that in a in an old warehouse in a corporate park. That you know, rather than on a studio soundstage. Interesting. So it all depends on exactly what exactly what the producers and studio and network decides that they want from a show. Have there are there trends? I mean, over time, have we seen uh, you know vogues in terms of, of? Well, right now, people and I guess it makes it's a great story to write, or it's an easy story to write. And if easy makes it great, then it's a great story to write. But the, a lot of people are saying that the sitcom is dead. That the sitcom is no more. And uh, that's because something like The Office or My Name is Earl wouldn't be viewed as a traditional sitcom. Those shows go with one single camera, and, you know, they shoot it it's one scene at a time, you know, and over the course of a number of days. Whereas a show like Friends or Seinfeld was done with three cameras before a live, or five cameras before a live studio audience. So people would say that, you know, that's going away, the the traditional in front of a live studio audience laugh track show is dying. But it, everything is cyclical. It'll come back eventually. All people need is one great show to get them back on board. Right. Now, what's more expensive? Uh, in terms of five-camera setup versus one? Yeah. I, I, I would imagine that a lot of that depends on exactly how many episodes they're producing and who the cast is and where they're shooting. But as far as in, within the actual just straight production costs themselves, what what is? I'm not. I don't think I know. I I, I actually I'm sure that I don't know. Interesting. I mean, I mean well, I'm sure there's trade-offs. Mm-hmm. You know, in both directions. I just realized that there's only one show I watched that that even could possibly work as uh, as filmed in front of a live studio audience, and that is the How I Met Your Mother. I, I guess The Office theoretically could work, but as you mentioned, they don't do that. No, they don't, yeah. And, and How I Met Your Mother, I, I believe that that tapes in front of a live studio audience, but if you watch the show, there are so many moments where they go, they like, jump back in time. Flashbacks, I yeah. don't know how that works, because traditionally a live studio audience show, you film from the beginning to the end, you know, and, and you go straight through it. You might do each scene twice or something, but working out that many flashbacks. They must roll tape, and, and the, the quote-unquote live audience has to be looking at the screens as, almost as often as they're looking at the stage. I exactly. Because they, they have some pretty extended flashbacks, and the episode yes, really depends on And it happens over and over again, and if you notice, like they'll start out on one day, and then they'll go back to the previous day, and then back to the first day, and then back to the previous day. And that, uh, I can't imagine that they're doing all of that live in front of a studio audience from beginning to end because it just would involve too many costume changes and take way too much time. Right. Josh, you are you are Mr. TV so much so that you, you have a master's degree in television. Now in that, television and film, yes. That, now that is something. <laughs> so with all of that education and pondering and the yeah. fact that you've been – Covering all these shows for us for how long? You've been with us quite a while now. How long? Uh, it, it, we're almost. We're. It's got to be about a year and a half. I'm going to say it was probably July or August of 2000. What are we? We're not 2008. So yeah. July or August of 2005. Wow. Wow. So, what is your favorite television show of all time? Of all time. All time. I don't know. It's fair to put me on the spot like that. Well, of course it isn't. Um, uh, I would have to say that, that I'm a huge Seinfeld fan. I, I People have called it the best ever. I don't know that I would, but I'm a huge Seinfeld fan. I just recently got on DVD, which I'd seen before, but I'm watching through it again now, The Prisoner, which is... Uh, the original... Patrick, yeah, with yeah. Patrick McGoon, which is... I think it's a fantastic series. That um, was fantastic. I liked that, yeah. yeah. I remember it. I watched it you know, at the time. But oh, I, you're old. I, I'm, I'm old. <laughs> I might, you know, I might say Seinfeld because it's something that you can just pick up and you can watch an episode of. And it, it, for me, it doesn't matter how many times I've seen it; it's always funny, and I always laugh, even though I know what's coming up. I, I just, it's for me that show works. I know a lot of people that absolutely despise it, but for me, it works. Well, mo- much of the nation sure loved it for for a long time, you know. 
I think maybe there's been backlash kind of after the fact. What surprised me is, is you know, Jerry has turned out to be kind of a jerk. You know, if you follow his his his, his life and his behavior, certainly since the show ended, you know, he, he seems to really have a chip on his shoulder, and that was very contrary to his persona. But you know, I mean, I obviously. People are not necessarily their personas, but I, that, maybe that's a testament to how well the show was done and how well it was written and how well it was put together that, that he was so likable. Well, I, I would like to state for the record that the official position of BC Radio Live is that Jerry Seinfeld is a delightful fellow. <laughs> Why is he listening? On, on the one in a bajillion chance that we have an opportunity to speak to his PR people and get yeah. him on the show. Oh, he, that's right. He's in the chat room. Hi, Jerry. No, I was reading stuff <laughs> you know, like about the B-movie and just kind of his yeah. attitude since the show's been over and how he treats people. I've heard anecdotal stuff of people who ask for you know, autographs, and sure, you know, you can't, anecdotal is just anecdotal, but, you know, eventually it kind of starts to add up, and I'm hearing the same things over again, that he's really rather arrogant. I, I couldn't say. I've, I've never met the man. I, I've been inside the building in which he has an apartment, but I've never actually met him, so <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I don't either. But so, so, Josh, did you did you ever end up uh, checking out Dexter, as I insisted in Las Vegas that you should? Well, I'd already seen season one of Dexter, and, and CBS CBS is actually starting as a part of their strike contingency plan. Uh, <laughs> this Sunday night, they're going to go back and they've re-edited the Showtime episodes, and they're starting with season one on Sunday night. I really um, can't see the point in that. You should look online. There are some trailers for you know the way they've recut it to convince people like you that uh, they ought to go back and watch. And sadly, oh. Josh does not get showtime. So uh, I'll be waiting for CBS to do season two. Okay, well, season season two is one of those edge of the seat. I've got a, I've got a friend who doesn't watch showtime, or he, he doesn't get showtime either. So I would, I would call him every week, and I would say, you really have to subscribe because I've got to have someone to talk to about what's going on. <laughs> it was driving me nuts. What's your favorite show right now that's, that's on currently? Uh, you mean that's like in general on currently, or you mean that's like actually on TV? One could find it on the schedule now. In has, general, has aired within the last eighteen months. In general, yeah, has aired within the last eighteen months. Uh, let's see. let's see, Monday nights. I don't know if there's anything there. Tuesday. Night. You know what? I'm going to say it is. What? Uh, I'm going to say it's The Office. You like that one? I do. I I enjoy my episodes of The Office, and I think. Uh, for anybody out there that turned it off a couple years ago like I did, Law & Order all of a sudden is back to being a fantastic show. There huh. were a couple rocky seasons in there. I turned it off when Dennis Farina was on. But uh, I think right now the show is just outstanding. That is interesting. And how long has it been on? How many years? Oh, I want to say that this is season 19. God, that's amazing. Season 18, season 19. Astonishing. Wow. Well, they've been able to convince everybody in the world that, you know, the cast doesn't matter. So it doesn't matter that nobody from the original cast is still there. Now, is that the ripped from the headlines show, or am I thinking of a different one? Yeah, no, that's that's ripped from the headlines, yes. Okay. Allegedly so, ripped from the so headlines. So theoretically, keeping up with the news might actually give you a, a heads up on what's going to happen in an episode. Sure, last week the, there was a murder due to the subprime mortgage crisis. Of course there was. <laughs> and are they going to bring Jerry Orbach uh, back from the dead? I, I don't think that they're going to do that. That would be, you know, a little bit beyond the pale. Actually, a zombie actually, episode. I don't know that they'll do it. Like Gene Kelly did the the vacuum cleaner commercial a couple years back. <laughs> right. I don't think that they're going to do it. Although I think it was after the first detective left the show. He left at the end of season one. The first episode in season two. Uh, it starts off with his wife hearing him outside getting hit by a car, and so <laughs> that was clever. And so that was that was the case for the yeah. first episode of that season. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. I I actually just noticed the time, so uh, I want to actually say uh, thank you to Josh Lasser. Be sure to listen to Screen Time right here on Blog Talk Radio every Tuesday night at 10:30 p.m. Eastern, which is 7:30 p.m. Pacific. And, of course, thanks to Rami, Chris, and Jeremy from Second Day Crush. Check them out at myspace.com slash 2ndaycrush. 
and look for their album From the Night You Lost Your Voice, either there at their MySpace page or on iTunes. Uh, also check out blogcritics.org slash bcradio to see the entire BC Radio Network schedule, which keeps growing and expanding uh, week by week, if you like. This has been BC Radio Live. We broadcast live every Wednesday night, 9 p.m. Eastern, so be sure to visit us if you participate in the chat room and watch the live video feed. If you missed the live broadcast, audio archives are available online, or you can subscribe to the podcast to have BC Radio Live delivered to you each week. Till next week, aloha!